Anyways, we are back in Genesis, and uh, the story we're going to read today is, um, is one where we see uh, lots of strange things. I'm going to read this chapter, and you're going to be like, what in the world did I get out of bed uh, to hear uh, something about this mess of a thing that I just heard from Genesis chapter 16? And, uh, and just because the Bible's reporting on it not, doesn't mean that the Bible is condoning it. We're going to see uh, polygamy and adultery and, in many ways, even abuse. And so uh, as we uh, read through this, uh, know that there's uh, grace in the water here. And, uh, and, and this is a tough one for Abraham. Uh, he's had two really good things happen to him in the last couple uh, chapters. Chapter 14, uh, from two weeks ago, we saw that Abraham had his 318 cronies. that They went and they defeated four powerful kings and their armies. And he did so in order to rescue his endangered son, Lot, who lived in one of the kingdoms that the four kings had conquered. It's a really kind of sacrificial thing for Abraham to go rescue his nephew. We see him looking really good. We see him looking powerful in chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, he's got his, he's got his doubts, but then God comes along and guarantees him that uh, the promises that he gave him in chapter 12 are going to be fulfilled even if Abraham screws it all up. It's an unconditional covenant, meaning that no matter what, God's going to do what he said. And so you would think at this point that Abraham's faith would be sturdy like concrete. You'd think it'd be unshakable. You'd think that he would not even have the slightest distrust in God, that his life would be one of perpetual obedience, but that's not what we see. We're back on the roller coaster with Abraham. He's been coming up, and now he's going down. He plummets this week, and he makes a huge mess. Have you ever made a big mess? I mean, not what your bedroom looks like at the moment, but, you know, a mess out of your life. I read of a few this week. One of them uh, was with the company Nokia. Uh, Nokia launched a phone, and they called it Lumia, L-U-M-I-A. And they did so without knowing that the Spanish term for Lumia means prostitute. It was an honest mistake. It wasn't intentional, but to say the least, it was a PR disaster. Yet another translation mistake happened with Pepsi. They're trying to compete with Coca-Cola a few years back, and they launched a campaign, and they entitled it, Come Alive! You're in the Pepsi generation. What they didn't know is that in China, one of their vast markets... The slogan was mistranslated, and it was mistranslated into, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. And because that culture worships ancestors, they believe Pepsi could bring the dead back to life. Needless to say, this was a big mess for Pepsi. Then there's, uh, it's a sad story, but it's also one that I find just humorous because there's a meme, there's endless memes of this episode, and it's with Bobby Petrino. Anybody know Bobby Petrino? Uh, he's now the offensive coordinator for Texas A&M, but he used to be the head coach at the University of Arkansas, and he got in a mess because he got in a, a motorcycle accident and he wasn't wearing a helmet. He sustained some physical injuries, but this wasn't what made the mess so bad. What made the mess so bad was that on the back of the bike was a woman half his age that he was not married to who also got in the wreck. She was engaged and Petrina was married. So obviously, they lost their jobs. Huge mess for Bobby Petrino, huge mess for this young woman, and a huge mess for the university. 
See, it's tempting to think that there are two types of people in the world, those who make messes and those who don't. So you better be a person who doesn't make messes. But it's my observation as a human being that part of the human condition is that we all make messes. It's very natural to us. Nobody has to teach us how to make messes. We do them quite easily. And we do them, we make messes even when we don't intend to. We make them even if we're trying not to make a mess. In fact, the biggest messes we make are when we try to clean up a mess we've already made. And that's what happens in our text today. So let's read it together. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Um, just so you know, uh, Abram and Sarai's their name changes to Sarah and Abraham. Uh, that happens in just the next few chapters. Uh, but I'm just going to roll with Abraham and Sarah in the sermon. Just so I don't get, because I won't be able to keep them straight. Uh, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand, shall, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. So chapter 12 and chapter 16 are separated by 10 years. These 10 years since the promise of having a son was given to now, have left Abram and Sarah in the same place they were in chapter 12. They're still childless. And you know this had to lead to tremendous pain for both of them, but particularly Sarah. I mean, there was nothing more devastating for women in the ancient world than being barren. The view of women at the time was that their sole function was to bear children. Children, in many ways, were a woman's capital. 
And to have many children was to be thought highly of, and having few or none was to be thought lowly of. So for Sarah to be barren, she hasn't met her culture's expectations. She hasn't even met her own. I mean, think about it. I mean, she's dreamed of as a little girl, if this is the way the culture works. She dreamed of as a little girl, and then as a young married woman, having a house full of children. She's not met Abraham's expectations because that's what Abraham had expected, that he wants his line to continue. But what makes this even more painful is that God had also promised that she would have children. So how is she supposed to integrate that promise with the fact that she's not pregnant and it's been 10 years since the promise was originally given? She's supposed to think, is it my fault? What am I doing wrong? Is it Abraham's fault? What's Abraham doing wrong? No. See, in her eyes, she's not only letting Abraham down, herself down, her culture down. She's letting God down too. So she comes up with a plan. So she can't have children biologically, so she thinks. She can have them by giving her maidservant, Hagar, to her husband in hopes that the two of them will have a child. Then that child will be hers. She could just take the child because she owns Hagar. Hagar is a single, younger, and she is Sarah's slave. And in their culture, it was common for rich, powerful men like Abraham to have multiple wives. It's also part of their culture to build a family in the same way that Sarah is proposing here if the wife is barren. So she could have children through her maidservants. She could take them as her own, and then she could sell off the maidservants. The maidservants were just used as a commodity. And you can see that Sarah views Hagar as a commodity because she never even uses her name in the text. She just calls her my maidservant. What Hagar is, she's just a, a tool to relieve Sarah's embarrassment and her anxiety. So when you sit in this for just a minute, you have tremendous compassion for both women, don't you? I mean, you hurt with Sarah because she's barren, and you hurt with Hagar because she's used. But then there's Abraham. He's completely passive, and that is what's supposed to be so offensive to us as the reader. He's the one who's heard the voice of the Lord, not Sarah. He's the one who's fresh off God, guaranteeing his covenant to him by going through the split animals. He's the one who should have questioned Sarah's idea. He's the one who should have assured Sarah of God's promises. He's the one who should have corrected Sarah for her view and, and, and treatment of Hagar. See, Abraham, he's got so much going for him. He's got all the assurances that he's received from the Lord. He's going to have children. He's going to have them through Sarah. So it makes it really hard to feel sorry for Abraham for his slip-up here in Genesis chapter 16. But the very bottom of things for Abraham and Sarah is that they're trying to work out every way imaginable to have a baby except a miracle. They're trying to fix this problem themselves in a way that makes sense to them. And their goal is the same as God's. They want what God wants, a child. The problem is that they're trying to achieve it through worldly means instead of miraculous means. See, you don't see any prayer in here. It should tip you off that things aren't looking good. Because when you do pray, it shows that you're convinced that a miracle is your only shot of success. And when you don't pray, it shows that you can think that you achieve 
what God wants without his help. And when you do so, you will make a huge mess. See, look at the mess in our text. Look at verse 4. Hagar is insubordinate to her master, and she has contempt for Sarah. And then she goes out into the desert, and when she gets out there, she doesn't repent for her insubordination she, of her meanness. She's just there. Look at verse 5. You have Sarah. She's mad as a horn at Abraham. And from one angle, it doesn't make a lot of sense because this wasn't his plan. It was hers. Then you have Sarah, the way she deals with Hagar in verse 6. She deals with her so harshly that she flees. And some commentators question if she was physically harmed by Sarah. So if you begin to chart these relationships, if you had Hagar and Sarah, Hagar and Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, and you begin to characterize what these three relationships look like, this like original love triangle that you have going on here. This is like Bachelor, except one, two of the three people are married. You have Abraham and Sarah. They've got this doozy of a marital tift. Sarah's mad at Abraham for sleeping with this younger woman, and Abraham's yelling back at his wife, telling her it was her idea. You can only imagine that. Hagar's flaunting her pregnant belly in front of Sarah, and Sarah's ready to kill her. Abraham gets what he wants from this cute young woman, treating her like a soulless baby machine, and now Hagar is alone in the desert where no one's going to care for her, and no one's going to care for that little baby. See, the cost of this human engineering is steep. So have you ever tried to self-engineer a relationship and make a big mess? I mean, let me just give you some examples. Maybe you're a Christian and you desire a mate. Because you desire a mate so badly, you look over some major character flaws and you end up in a marriage that's a mess. Maybe you enter marriage and you expect marriage to save you. You, you expect your spouse to save you and then your spouse doesn't meet your expectations and your marriage is a mess. Or maybe you get into marriage and you want your spouse to change in some way, so you nag and nag and nag, and you just get angrier the more you nag, and your spouse gets angrier the more you nag at them. A mess. Maybe you get in a conflict with a peer, with a friend, and you, you, you try to self-engineer it by being really strong-handed, trying to make them apologize to you instead of listening to things from their perspective. Or maybe you get in this conflict and you take all the blame and the other person doesn't. All to make the conflict go away. But it robs the other person of repenting, of changing themselves, self-engineering. You're trying to control things. Maybe as a parent, you want to have a baby so bad, or when you have a baby, you want the baby to follow schedule so bad, which is a good thing. It helps keep you sane. But what happens when the baby doesn't do it? Fast forward 15 years, what happens when your teenager doesn't meet your expectations? Maybe you're so lonely that you've gone to online communities and social media as a way to scratch that itch for relationship. How's that going for you? Probably in a mess. See, all, all these things are good. There's nothing inherently wrong with social media, though I'm getting closer and closer to saying that there is. 
wanting your baby to follow schedule, having expectations for your teenager, trying to deal with conflict and, and a peer relationship, marriage, all these things are good. So how are we supposed to process all this when we have a mess? Well, look at Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. From one perspective, you see that we just reap what we sow. If you think God's going to turn a blind eye to your sin, you're wrong. You're going to feel pain as a natural consequence. And in many ways, the reason God allows you to feel that pain is that you might repent. So in the end, the pain is his gift to you. But from another angle, we need to see that all sin begins with distrusting God. I mean, you've got these three people and they're not getting along and it's not because they're just bad at relationships. The problem isn't communication. The problem isn't the organizational structure of their household. Reverse engineering this, looking back on the episode and just saying, hey, Sarah, you should have done this and Abraham should have done this and Hagar should have done this so that when this happens next time, you won't be in that same spot. See, all of those are just technical solutions. Usually technical solutions won't work. We wish they worked because they're usually expedient, but they're usually shortcuts and end arounds to the work that actually needs to be done. The real work that needs to be done is at a heart level. The real solution are only possible when there's real heart change. And for real heart change to happen, you need God to show up. And that's exactly what happens in Genesis 16. But who does God show up to? I mean, I would think he'd show up to Sarah, wouldn't you? I mean, Sarah's the one in many ways causes this whole mess. Maybe it's Abraham, because in many ways this is all his fault, because he's the one who got the promises, so God's going to show up and confront him for his lack of faith. The last person you'd expect God to show up to in this episode to fix this relational ecosystem is Hagar. I mean, she's a slave. She's a woman. She's an Egyptian. And not only that, she's acted quite ugly, hasn't she? She's not repented. She's been subordinate to Sarah. She's not been especially obedient, but somehow she gets God's attention. How does she get God's attention when that's what she's got going for? Well, do you see it in verse 11? <laughs> do you see how she gets God's attention? God hears her affliction. That's amazing. Here's this poor woman. She's been used and abused and thrown out and her future's uncertain. She's in obvious pain and that's why God has found her. Her suffering has rung in his ears. He must come and visit her. And when he does, he makes her a promise. She's the only matriarch who gets the promise of descendants as numerous as a star. Sure, Abraham gets it, but Sarah doesn't get it. Rebecca doesn't get it. Rachel nor Leah get it. Just Hagar. I think the fact that she gets this promise, it makes her heart jump. She's elated. She's astounded. And then she becomes the only person in all the scriptures, man or woman, who gives God a name and she calls him the God who sees me. 
So brother and sister, can I tell you something today? God has seen you. God has heard you. Your pain has gotten his attention and has gotten his attention so much so that he has sent what is most precious to him to you, his only beloved son. And he sent his son not to show you how to live, but to rescue you in all of your pain. He came so that you might have hope and a taste of glory instead of just bitterness in life. He really does love you. And when he finds you, when he's seen and heard you in your pain, he might just ask you to do something quite unexpected. Do you see it in verse 9? God calls Hagar to go back to Sarah. She's got to go back to the one who's treated her so poorly. But she's willing to because she's met God in her tears. And it's changed her forever into this woman of courage. And see, when you suffer and God meets you in it, you change into a person of real depth. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I get old, when I lose the rest of my hair, I want to be this solid, weighty, radiant old man. Don't you want to be that man or woman, a solid, radiant, weighty Old man, I don't mean weighty like overweight, obese. I mean uh, a person of real substance. Well, if you do, and I I really do, then you've got to let the pain in your life drive you into deeper fellowship with Jesus. You you can't let your heart dry up. See, Jesus is with you in your pain. He's refining you. You're not going to lose anything except one thing, and that's the thing you most want to shed, your old selfish nature. See, God loves you too much to let you remain shallow. Your tears are his tools. What about Abraham and Sarah? What's God going to do with these two jokers? I mean, he, he does make them wait another 13 years before they have a child. They've already waited 10. Now we're going to get up to 23 years from the time the promise was given until they have Isaac. They do have to interact with Hagar and Ishmael on a daily basis. They're going to remind them of this painful episode from Genesis 16. It's got to be hard, don't you think? But brother and sister, God doesn't reject them. He does give them a child. They're not disqualified from being agents of God in the world in spite of their impatience, in spite of their passivity, and in spite of their cruelty towards Hagar. This is all grace, isn't it? I mean, they don't deserve any of this. Doesn't that comfort you this morning? Doesn't it comfort you that you can't get God to unchoose you despite your most shameful decisions? That his blessing is going to get to you no matter how hard you resist it? Doesn't that comfort you? See, when that truth, when it sinks down real deep into your heart, it's going to allow you to wait on God for whatever it is you're tempted to self-engineer in your relationships. You're going to be able to refuse taking the shortcut. You're going to be able to lay down your anxieties and, and just pray. You're going to be able to trust God to change your heart and the ones that you love. So brother and sister, I'm here this morning to say, hang in there. Grace is around the corner. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, this is a surprising message. <laughs> but grace is always surprising. Uh, it's, it, it's the one thing that doesn't come natural to us. So many wicked and evil things do. We are so bent in on ourselves, Lord, that we can't imagine that, that you are a God of grace. So, Lord, I pray uh, that you would meet us and, Lord, that you would allow us to throw your shame on you, that we would allow you to meet us in our pain. Oh, Lord, do that uh, at this meal. Do this as we pray. In Christ's name, amen.